this is the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Today, high African fashion goes fair trade in the Netherlands, investigating extraterrestrial prokaryotes here on Earth. Crash! Are we in the midst of another mass extinction here on this blue-green planet? And moving beyond the so-called two-state solution, the single state of Israel-Palestine is now on the drawing board. Welcome to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Some good news in the news. Scientists are reportedly on the verge of figuring out how to actually make fusion energy happen. How to generate vast amounts of energy simply by fusing hydrogen nuclei. Futurists have been talking about doing this for years. Too good to be true, many have chortled and chuffed. But wait for it. Today, thanks to advances in super-high conducting material science and nanotechnology, U.S. engineers say they'll put fusion energy on the grid within 15 years. That would constitute an astonishing leap out of the carbon economy, as revolutionary a technology as the wheel and the internal combustion engine. Now, talking about revolution, how about if the world's leaders actually started leading with vision and courage, started taking risks, including the risk of losing funding and not getting re-elected, being bold, going for the gusto, not the sort of thing leaders, such as they are these days, do. I mean, do they? Name me a leader who's come out in opposition to permanent economic growth, something any well-read high school kid could tell you is impossible. The permanent growth idea flagrantly violates the first and second laws of thermodynamics. And yet, et pourtant, leaders like Canada's Justin Trudeau fully embrace the idea. Not surprisingly, they're also having a hard time weaning themselves off the carbon that's gotten us into this predicament. Justin Trudeau says Canada can only meet its Paris reduction targets by building more oil pipelines. But there is good news in the form of carbon's splendid replacement. Number one in the periodic table seems to be on its way. Couldn't come too early. This is the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. If you've got a good book, I yolla, keep your book good at all. If you've got a good book, I yolla, keep your book good at all. Boy, keep good at all. It may come along a young heaven and just pull your boots from home. Long and 
the true father of the Mississippi Delta Blues, that was Charlie Patton from his final sessions for the Vocalion label on January 30th, 1934, Jersey Bull Blues. A great song to listen to Patton engaging in a specialty of his, string slapping, pulling the bass string back with thumb and finger and slapping it back sharply against the frets. Powerful stuff. Mention Rwanda. What comes to mind? Probably not trendy fashion. Think again. Over the past four years, a pair of Dutch 20-somethings have been marketing a line of upscale men's and women's wear handmade in Rwanda. And they're fair trade. Kigali comes to Amsterdam. I put this story together shortly after Afrique was created in 2014. Much progress since then. I'll fill you in. Listen to this first. I'm walking through Amsterdam in the company of a pair of Dutch 20-somethings. We're heading to a boutique where a men's blazer they've created is debuting in the Dutch fashion market. It's the only shop in Amsterdam at this moment. And uh, it's a really nice designer shop. How did 26-year-old Sivan Bremahar, a conflict studies grad, get involved in men's fashion? And what are these blazers she and a friend are producing in Rwanda, of all places? Very special ones, very colorful ones. And they're made in Rwanda. They're made in Rwanda, yeah. There's so much to tell about these blazers. African craftsmanship. African craftsmen make the blazers. This is Sivan's partner, Kars Gerritz, an international relations grad. While interning at the Dutch embassy in Kigali, Rwanda, he and Sivan, also in Rwanda doing master's research, decided to launch an African-style fashion product in Europe. First, they thought flip-flops, then men's blazers. Dutch fashion giant Flisco sells African-style threads to the famously conservative Dutch for big euros. Sivan and Cars would do the same, using African fabric and craftsmanship. Afrique, they'd call their line. 
We arrive at the shop where Afrique blazers are sold, one of five outlets from northern Groningen to Antwerp. We can mix a match. What do you think about Afrique blazers? I ask the woman at the cash register. For the right guy, it can make him look excellent, but it's, yeah, it's not for everybody. I think you have to be a bit of an extrovert to wear something like this. Yeah, but also, um, I also see this kind of relaxed guy, and he buys this because he likes it, he thinks it's cool, and he just puts, like, pants on, he's very easygoing. That's the type of man I see with this, actually. Above a little square in Amsterdam's Jordaan district, Sivan recalls her Afrique inspiration. Colorful blazers hang from a nearby rack. I, full disclosure, intend to buy one. During my time in Rwanda, I saw a lot of beautiful things. The fact that women go to the tailor with their own fabric and they choose their own dress, it's something completely different than the Netherlands. We all dress the same almost. The idea behind it is to show the beauty of Africa and combine it with our European way of looking at fashion, so bringing the worlds together. Bringing worlds together in trendy Amsterdam is easier said than done, certainly at this price. 289 euros, Cars reveals. I gulp silently, a common male response. They come to the shop, they look at the blazer, they think this is a very nice blazer, but then they see the price, they think, but I'm not going to buy it now, so then they have to think about it, talk to their wives, ask their wives Did whether this it's happen? nice. Yeah, in a lot. Yeah, some people are very like, oh, this is too too much for me. But once they wear it, it actually really looks good if you combine it well. There's a lot of women who say, why isn't this for for us? But uh, it'll come later. We start with the men. Yeah. Well, a man's got to do what a man's got to do. I'm heading across town to Cars' pad to buy an Afrique blazer. Thankfully, a deal awaits, an early creation bereft of its German buttons. Cars coils German-made gold thread for me to use once buttons are procured. So I'm wearing now, I'm wearing a, a, a great Afrique blazer. H- how does it look on me, do you think, Cars? Stunning. Yeah, very, very good. Comfy in my blazer, I ask Cars to explain the unusual nature of his fashion venture. It's a curious combination. I wanted to do something in Africa. I wanted to make something beautiful and change perspective here in Holland. Cars and Sivan's project takes them back and forth between Amsterdam and Kigali, where three tailors assemble blazers on second-hand German sewing machines. Fabric comes from Ivory Coast, Ghana, and Nigeria, lining from Italy, threads and buttons from Germany. Tailors earn 10% on each jacket they sew, way more than what clothing workers in places like Pakistan earn. Still, is it fair trade? Branding is tricky. When I came there for the first time, I uh, wanted them to follow the fair wear organization uh, guidelines. So I told them, you can't work more than 48 hours per week. And they started saying, well, why? If I work 60 hours, for instance, 
I can make two more blazers, I earn more money, and I can send all my children to school. Afrique tailors can work as hard as they want, but are encouraged to rest on Sundays. Sivan and Cars find other ways to deal fairly and turn their product into a story, something fashion artists like to do. Inside each Afrique blazer on a little label, the name of its Rwandan tailor. In the end, these blazers sell for their beauty, says Sivan. If you brand it right, I think, there's the fashion people, so the people that see this uh, blazer in a magazine and think like, wow, I really have to have it. And that's actually, I think, the most sustainable part of your customers. Because those are the people who are willing to spend so much money for a blazer they really, really love. Outside Amsterdam's supermarket, Sivan and Cars tally the blazers they've sold. So it's not bad. We should make sure that they have new ones so that they can sell more. Cars and C-Van are pragmatic, with more than one clothes horse in their stable. As we stroll along, C-Van spots the pocket on my T-shirt. You know, we also have T-shirts. <laughs> with pockets, like you have. T-shirts. Yeah. In the unlikely event that all else fails, C-Van and Cars have launched a line of Afrique T-shirts, much fancier than the one I'm wearing now. Because we decided blazers there... Very expensive for most people, also very outspoken. So we added a line of t-shirts with a little pocket of African fabric to our line. And uh, that really works. The threshold isn't that high for buying a t-shirt with a weird, funny pocket. <laughs> t-shirts with pockets are just the start. This winter and spring, Cars and C-Van will be in Rwanda, launching a new, more diversified line, men's pants, a button-down shirt. Last, we take Manhattan. First, they take Amsterdam, then they take Berlin. Afrique jackets appear in Berlin shops this March, a women's collection may follow in July Fashion Week. Back in Amsterdam, Sivan and Cars will present their hand-tailored blazers at one of those trendy pop-up shops in Amsterdam's De Pipe district. Blazers with unique stories that began in Africa, stories for Dutch shoppers to pursue on their own. A lengthy line of Afrique trousers, shorts, blazers, jackets, bombers, sweaters, t-shirts with pockets are now available in various wild and crazy designs for men and women. For the more conventionally inclined, also shirts and shorts in straight-up beige or navy. For more details and a link to Afrique online, go to greenplanetmonitor.net. You are listening to The Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Lord, I 
Suitcase Blues, Sippy Wallace. Saturn, the most elaborate of Earth's nine planets, is encircled by over 60 moons of various sizes. 53 of these little orbs have been named. Of these, Enceladus, or Enceladus, is the most remarkable. A mere 500 kilometers in diameter, Enceladus is covered in ice, making it the most reflective object in our solar system. That's amazing. I I never knew that before. I just learned that today. Through cracks in the ice, plumes of hot water vapor send ice crystals rocketing into the sky out of Enceladus's surface that end up forming Saturn's E-ring, 
along with ice crystals, a mixture of silicon and simple organic molecules, including methane. Now, the million-dollar question, could some of this methane be produced by, by microorganisms? Without being able to take a sample, um, it's hard to say. A group of Austrian and German microbiologists have now identified a prokaryote here on Earth that could fit the bill. It's called Methanothermococcus. It's not a true bacterium, it's an archaean. Simon Rittman studies archaeans like this little bug. He spoke with me by phone from his lab in Vienna. Tell me about Methanothermococcus okinawensis. It's an archaean. Thermophilic archaeon that um, was isolated a couple of years ago from a Japanese group. And this organism is, um, um, is very interesting because it can produce biomass from inorganic compounds. So there are no precursors um, necessary for Methanothermococcus okinawensis um, that, are, that were produced in, from, by photosynthesis. So only inorganic compounds can be used as substrates uh, for growth, uh, so for, for the carbon and energy metabolism. And yeah, the end product of this, um, of this metabolism is methane and biomass on the other hand. And this organism was isolated from hydrothermal vent systems, so near Okinawa and from approximately 1,000 meter deep. And so um, we also um, hypothesized that it would sustain a high pressure, and indeed it did. So it um, produced methane up to 90 bars. And in, the, in this final experiment where we combined all these different combinations of liquid and gaseous inhibitors and high pressure, it, grew, um, up to, it produced methane up to 50 bars. And uh, another characteristic of Methanothermococcus okinawensis is that it grows quite, quite fast. So, under optimal growth conditions, I have to say. Now, you were you were mentioning um, Simon Rittmann that Methanothermococcus okinawensis it grows along the sides of hydrothermal vents. What what is a hydrothermal vent? Yeah, hydrothermal vent is a is a um, is an opening in the seafloor where um, hot fluids. Um, emit from the from the subsurface and these hot fluids um, are heated up below the seafloor so if the ocean water like um, diffuses or sinks into the seafloor it gets heated up and then it gets emitted through these hydrothermal vent systems and in the vicinity of these hydrothermal vent systems for instance um, life can exist or life is known to exist and for instance some methanogens such as Methanothermococcus okinavensis and Methanothermococcus villosus, and Methano, Methanocaldococcus villosus were isolated from these environments. Now, what would the ingredients be for methane production? What would Methanothermococcus and its, um, its uh, homologs uh, putatively living on Enceladus, what would they use as ingredients to actually make uh, methane that... that that comes out from the the crust of the earth. Yeah, we can we can only speculate about whether there would be similar organisms as methanogens. It could be maybe a totally different physiology that has um, yeah evolved a certain metabolism that can also produce methane. It might also be that there is life spread out in the whole solar system. We do not know, but um, we hypothesize that um, the energy 
and carbon source is hydrogen and carbon dioxide, and this is why we used methanogens for this purpose. So it could also be that there are yeah, similar organisms or organisms that have similar metabolism, but bacteria would um, would be able to produce acetate, for instance. But they're using they're using hydrogen, molecular hydrogen, and uh, combining it with carbon dioxide to produce methane. Yeah, exactly. They do this. Yeah. Methanogens do this on on Earth. So not only those two, but there are many, many more organisms known to produce methane from hydrogen and carbon dioxide. These are referred as hydrogenotrophic, autotrophic methanogens. Now, Methanothermococcus okinawensis, it it, it, uh, it it seems to have the characteristics that you'd expect to have for, for prokaryotes to have on on um, on Enceladus because it it's uh, not harmed by various toxic compounds that seem to be present on Enceladus. Tell me about that. It's tell tell me a little bit about that because you looked at a few other Archaeans and they were really sensitive, damaged by high pressure, and talk various toxic organic compounds. But Methanothermococcus okinawensis seemed to do just fine under these conditions. Yeah, actually, we investigated um, three different methanogens. So Marburgensis was the third one. And um, we have a lot of experience with Methanothermobacter marburgensis. This organism was initially isolated from a wastewater treatment plant in, near Marburg in Germany. But this organism, um, as we have many experiments, we thought that this organism would tolerate some of the inhibitors. But it did not. It did initially directly not grow and produce methane um, with some of the inhibitors like carbon monoxide and ethene. And these compounds, carbon monoxide and ethene, these are all, um, for some methanogens, these are really potent inhibitors of growth or of the carbon and energy metabolism. And um, in these initial experiments, where we tested these three strains, um, two of them, so Velosus and Okinavensis, did um, still grow and produce methane. But uh, Velosus was, sometimes it was harmed, sometimes not. You see this in this high standard deviation in our graphs. But Okinavensis grew nicely and reproducibly under these conditions. And um, yeah, the environment from which those organisms are isolated, they also contain a bit of carbon monoxide and maybe other potential inhibitors um, that um, come from below sea, um, from, from below subsurface seafloor. How do you grow Methanothermococcus okinawensis in the lab? I presume you're, you're actually growing it in the lab. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, yeah we, we, this is our daily routine, more or less. So we. We have been performing many studies using those three organisms, and we grow them um, in close batch mode. This means it's a small bottle, 120 milliliters, um, with a rubber stopper and, and sealed. And there we put in the liquid growth medium containing only inorganic compounds, so trace elements and a phosphate carbonate buffer. And then we inoculate this, so we reduce before with sodium sulfate, and then we put this organism in, and then we grow it on um, hydrogen carbon dioxide, which gets replaced like daily or even twice per day. And then this organism consumes the gas and produces uh, methane and biomass. Yeah, and this we repeat and under different conditions until we have, yeah. So this little creature, Methanothermococcus okinawensis, an organism like that could indeed be living, clinging to the edges of hydrothermal vents beneath this frozen surface of this watery ocean on Enceladus. Yeah, I mean, 
maybe not this organism, but maybe an organism that has a similar physiology yeah, to to methanogens as we know them from Earth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, there must be a way to to, to actually look at the, uh, the the mass spec profiles of the gases in these in these plumes coming out of Enceladus and say this is almost certainly derived from biological activity. Yeah, the the problem with this is um, that also to you in geochemical reactions produce different isotope um, isotope um, fractionation of methane. And so it's not very easy even on Earth to distinguish between thermogenic, biological methane and whatsoever. So there are many, many open questions even on Earth how to discriminate between um, the different um, um, isotopes or the different methane isotopes or carbon isotopes in methane and yeah, and this is really this is an ongoing process, and the geologists have, or Earth scientists don't have a clear answer to this problem. So one would need to have um, to focus on the carbon um, isotopes, and to focus in parallel on different signatures of life, like lipids, um, so archaea lipids, bacterial lipids, and and maybe other characteristics of life, proteins, and so forth. It's intriguing to think that here on the surface of planet Earth, maybe deep down beneath the surface, beneath the, you know, sitting on the floor of the ocean, there are conditions that are very similar to, we presume to be similar to the conditions that exist on places like Enceladus. And we can actually uh, study the biology or the potential biology of things that are growing on elsewhere in uh, uh, in the solar system, in our solar system, based on what's actually going on 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 planet Earth, this is exobiology. Absolutely, absolutely, it is. Yeah, it is. It is really. It is it, totally fascinating. Um, we were we were fascinated ourselves from these results because we could in, initially only yeah, set up hypotheses um, whether this would be possible, and then it turned out it. It grew under gaseous inhibitor conditions, Okinavensis and Villosus, and liquid inhibitors did not harm the growth at certain concentrations, and also a multivariate combinations of these inhibitors did not. And then the multivariate in, uh, concentrations of liquid inhibitors plus the gaseous um, inhibitors did not um, restrain the organism from producing methane and um, growth, and still, did still occur. And then we applied in addition to that also high pressure and it worked you know it was taught it was very fascinating i must say yeah. and and i mean life we know that life on this on our planet can live in so many different environments and even even the possibility so the existed organisms could potentially grow on in different environments environments that have not been investigated before is intriguing yeah. Simon Rittman, I'd like to thank you for joining me on the Green Blue Show. You're, you're welcome. Yeah, I'm, thanks for inviting me. Simon Rittman is a senior scientist in the Department of Ecogenomics and Systems Biology at the University of Vienna. Read more about Methanothermococcus and what it suggests to us regarding what's actually going on beneath the icy surface of Saturn's illustrious little moon, Enceladus, at greenplanetmonitor.net.
Seems like a millionaire Since I sat down and talked with you Seems like a millionaire Since I sat down and talked with you Do you feel the way I do? Some days you keep from worrying Some just ride from town to town Willie Nix recorded for the Sun label on October 9th, 1953. James Cotton on harmonica, Albert Williams on piano, Joe Willie Wilkins on guitar, and Willie Nix on vocals and drums. You've probably heard this before. Planet Earth is in the throes of a major extinction event. The sixth such bout of cataclysmic collapse among Earth's living species since life began. Humans are to blame. Destroying habitat, raising Earth's temperature, acidifying the oceans. Here are some voices from the Earth Chronicles vault. They'll tell you who they belong to after they've had their say. And we're here by accident, <laughs> strictly by accident, because along, along the way, there were numerous extinction events. That's the geological term for these mass die-offs. You can quarrel about uh, how you define how many uh, are major, but uh, eight or ten is not a bad guess. There have been extinction spasms in the past when large numbers of phyla disappeared from the earth and the most recent one is when the dinosaurs disappeared uh, what 70 70 million years ago yes i was saying that dinosaurs probably vanished on the face of the earth over the within one year the energy involved in the tungus arrival was about uh, again estimated at approximately about 15 uh, megatons 
which is a very, very large nuclear weapon. And if it had arrived over Paris or New York or, or any major city, it would have wiped it out. Tungus, they worked out, but of course Shoemaker in the U.S. who's led in this, this field, uh, the, the, they worked out that that was probably a thousand-year event. It's probably an event that size probably only happens roughly once every thousand years. We've got fossil evidence going back at least 600 million years. So we could expect something like five or six such events. You have no idea when they're going to arrive, you understand. I mean, you could have another one tomorrow. These mass extinctions have, have uh, been an extremely powerful uh, source for producing variation in, in the types of species that we see. Um, you knock them down to, you know, say 10, 30 percent of what was there before, and you get this fantastic radiation occurring afterwards. You, know, you can follow the layers up to a certain point and see the progression of species, and then wham, the next layer will have none. Uh, go up a few more layers and then you can see, aha, here are the species that uh, survived that extinction event. Well, it turns out that uh, the, uh, the mammalian group, uh, in general, happened to survive better than, uh, than the reptiles and the dinosaurs. Uh, and it's, it's almost accidental. If that hadn't happened, no doubt the dinosaur group and the reptile group would continue today as dominant life forms because they were dominant for something like 150 million years before. The dinosaurs were exterminated by what has been called an abiotic forcing factor, um, which occurred at the moment, of course, dinosaurs and many other forms of life um, disappeared from the geologic record. The dinosaurs disappeared in a catastrophe which was of global magnitude and which took place perhaps within a year or so. Today, uh, there are different processes doing essentially the same thing, and probably the uh, primary thing here would be uh, habitat destruction. We're narrowing the, the uh, area that these species uh, can exist into regions that are, are small, so small that the populations are, are themselves now only a fraction of what they had been. And uh, they also, we're, we're uh, fragmenting these pieces uh, so that we're seeing perhaps in overall numbers, uh, a fair number of, of animals, but each group is, is uh, quite small. Uh, once you get into this uh, uh, realm of small populations, and by small I'm, I'm talking the range of say two to five hundred animals, a, a whole different group of processes become important. Um, we see that uh, chance becomes uh, a, a, a very important factor. Uh, chance events relating to births and deaths, uh, finding a mate, uh, the number of males versus females are produced, and uh, chance events related to environment, say uh, uh, the, the number of prey items that are around that year, things like rainfall, bad winters. Uh, these things now, uh, when we're talking on a scale of say 500 years, can have a very important impact. The population is, is fluctuating up and down, but uh, if, when, when we're dealing with these small populations, the possibility is that at one point it's going to touch zero on one of these dips. Uh, 
when you get into very small populations, now talking say less than 50, um, these processes start to build on themselves. And um, you, you have what uh, uh, Michael Soule down in, in California has termed extinction vortices. My name is David Suzuki. I'm a professor of zoology at the University of British Columbia. People are talking now about within the next hundred years a quarter of all plants and animals being extinct. I mean that just makes me shudder. It is sensationalism and we ought to be sensational. Um, our, our present system of changing the environment is abolishing a kind, kinds of animals and plants at a rate a thousand times normal. And if it goes on for another 50 years, we shall have produced an extinction as big as the Cretaceous tertiary. As big as that. Man will have done it. If we, if we accept an 80% extinction, it'll probably include us. In order of appearance, that was Ben Gad, the late Digby McLaren, David Suzuki, Dale Russell, and Rick Schneider. Now go get my plan, baby. Drive it up to my door. Say love in Korea, now I'm going. Back over in Tokyo, baby. Way over in Jerusalem. Well, I'm gonna find my baby. Let her know just where I am. Well, I cried all night last night. My pillow got soaking wet. Been gone two years and I ain't found my baby yet. I'm sitting over. Walk way over to Jerusalem. Well, I got a letter from my baby. She wanna know just why I am. Well, all right, five. Native of Benoit, Mississippi, apparently his only recorded vocal, that was James Peck Curtis singing Jerusalem Blues. Curtis was associated with the King Biscuit entertainers on Helena, Arkansas radio back in the 50s. Jeff Halper is an Israeli-American anthropologist, author, and activist. As director of the Israeli Committee Against Home Demolitions, Halper shined light on Israel's ongoing dispossession of Palestinian Jerusalemites. Hungry for fresh strategy, Halper helped found the People Yes Network, which continues to network and grow. Now, Halper has returned from a brainstorming session at Israeli academic Ilan Pape's Center for Palestine Studies in Exeter, England, 
a dozen Israeli and Palestinian activists came up with something called the One Democratic State Campaign and are now mobilizing on and around it. Formal campaign launch is scheduled for this coming fall. Jeff Halper spoke with me from Jerusalem. Jeff Halper, tell me about uh, this One Democratic State campaign that's been launched uh, recently by yourself and these other folks in, in Exeter in England. Um, can you start off by telling me who, who were these folks? Who were these people who got together in Exeter, England to come up with this? Well, you know, the time has come. I mean, um, a lot of us in the Israeli peace movement, and of course, Palestinians as well, supported the two-state solution for many years. Uh, Arafat accepted it 30 years ago, in 1988. So it was good enough for Arafat, it was good enough for me, even though of course, it wasn't a fair and just solution, the two-state solution, but it could have worked probably in, in, in a certain way. But it's over. It's gone. It's clear that Israel doesn't want it. I mean, Netanyahu said that the other day. Uh, and, um, you know, with the settlements and everything else, it's gone. Yeah, Netanyahu did indeed just say the other day that really from the Jordan River to the sea, there will there'll never really be a real Palestinian state. No, he said in an APAC conference on TV that uh, even if there's peace, Israel will retain military control. So there's going to be an apartheid. There is an apartheid system today, um, and it'll remain, and that's clear. So in a sense, that's the point. The point is that not only is the two-state solution gone, and we should stop talking about it, because it only muddies the waters when you talk about a solution that's that's irrelevant. But in fact, today, de facto, there already is one state. There is one effective state between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. And it's an Israeli regime, let's say. Um, you know, an Israeli, one Israeli government, one uh, infrastructure, one currency, one set of borders, one army, obviously. Uh, over another palace over another population israeli jews over palestinians so it's clearly an apartheid regime so in a sense we're sort of going with the momentum you know and saying to israel fine you know what you eliminated the two-state solution over 50 years systematically and deliberately don't go blaming the arabs for that it's not a trick you eliminated the two-state solution you created one state in this country between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River. Okay, fine, we agree. But that one state cannot be an apartheid regime, of course. And so all we're asking is that one state be transformed into a democratic state of equal rights for all its citizens. Okay, now like, tell me the details in a moment, Jeff. But... but, but Tell me who these folks were who gathered in Exeter. So that's the, that's the, that's the idea. And we've been meeting a, a group of us, Israelis and Palestinians, for a year uh, here. And, um, and we finally got together a couple of weeks ago in Exeter, where Ilan Papi, the Israeli historian, has the Center for Palestine Studies. Uh, and uh, we managed to put together a final program. Now, the people involved are really good people. Um, they're not people that are known so much outside of the country, but for example, uh, one of them is Awad Abdel Fattah, 
who was with Azmi Bashara, one of the founders of the Balad party, one of the major Arab parties in Israel. And he was the director general for years. Ilan Pape is involved, of course. Um, Eitan Bronstein, who was the founder of Zohrot, uh, an Israeli organization around the right of return. Um, Asad Ranem, who's a professor of political science at Haifa University. Rari Jarai, who was uh, a prisoner for many years from the West Bank, who was responsible for negotiating prisoners' issues in under Oslo. Diana Butu, uh, who's a very well-known activist and was very, um, you know, working with the Palestinian Authority for many years. Um, Daphna Baram, who's an Israeli uh, activist. So, in other words, some really good people. Sami Miari, who's a, um, uh, a Palestinian-Israeli professor of economics at Tel Aviv University. It's a good mixture of intellectuals and activists. Uh, it's a small working group right now of about 15 people. But we put together a really good program, I think, and that's what we're now going to try to take forward. We're gonna, the idea is to launch the movement in the fall. So between now, where we formulated our program, and the fall, we have to consolidate our base so that we, so we really begin to be a sort of a movement by the fall. Calling for. It's a very simple idea. You know, it, it just cuts through everything. And the idea is to take the one state that Israel created and turn it into a democracy, a democratic state of equal rights for everybody, which shouldn't be such a shocking idea for Canadians. Oh, a democracy. Why didn't we think about that before? Now, the first thing, the knee-jerk reaction for everybody is, well, what about the Jews? Everybody's worried about the Israelis. Because, of course, there's going to be a Palestinian majority in this country. Whether or not the refugees return, and the right of return, of course, is crucial to this, but whether or not they actually return doesn't matter. There's going to be a Palestinian majority. So in order to address that fear of Israelis and people that are concerned about Israelis, because, you know, the problem always is what happens to the oppressor when the oppression ends? It's a weird dynamic that the oppressor, the oppressed have to assure their oppressors that they'll be safe if the oppression ends. Otherwise, they don't give up power. So the idea is we'll have a constitution, which we don't have now. So it'll be a constitutional democracy in which, um, in which the collective rights of all the groups in the country, especially Palestinian Arabs and Israeli Jews, will be respected and protected. So that parliament will not have the authority to pass laws that discriminate against any community. So once you have that assurance in place, that, that addresses the Israeli fear about it being minority and lets us get on with the main thrust of our idea, which is actually building a new civil society. A new civil society uh, where there's one citizenship, one parliament, integrated army and police, of course, uh, civil marriage, integrated schools. We really begin genuinely and sincerely to build something new and good with a very good economy. I think this country will have a great economy. So that I think we're presenting this as a positive, constructive, challenging, or a challenge, let's say, rather than something that we have to go into with all kinds of fears. 
And the big fear, and that is what happens to Israeli Jews in a Palestinian majority country, we're addressing in this constitutional way, which is as good as you can do. Jeff, kind of like an ends to the Jewish state. Israel ended the Jewish state. Once you, once you, you eliminate the two-state solution, you eliminate any possibility of a Jewish state. You know, you can't... What, and Israel did this. That's why the framing is so important. This isn't something we're imposing on Israel. This is something that's building on the reality that Israel created. So that you can't... Israel can't take control of all the territory of the country, including territory that would have been a Palestinian state, and permanently rule over all the Palestinians in the country which Netanyahu says outright we're going to do, and then want to be a Jewish state. You can't, you, you know, half the population today is Palestinian, and like I said, in a few years to be a majority. Well, you can't, you know, you can't create an apartheid state and then want to be a Jewish state. It just doesn't compute. Now, let me just be clear about one thing. The idea of collective rights is that you have a right to be a Zionist if you want. We're not going to tell you what you are. You can be Israeli. Nobody's going to close the Hebrew University. People continue to speak Hebrew, which will be a, a, a national language. You'll have all the rights uh, like, like the French do, in a sense, in the, in the French speakers in Canada. You'll have all the rights of a, of a community within the framework of a larger democratic state. Um, so, in a sense, you have your cake and eat it, too. It's a win-win. Nobody stops you from being in a position from the government of Israel and from its, its allies, Canada, the United States. I mean, to the extent that it becomes part of the debate, I would imagine the, the quote-unquote international community opposing it entirely. So you could comment on that, but I'm wondering what can international civil society do and the BDS campaign and others to, to uh, help this? Well, the framing is crucial. And the framing is that it's Israel that did this. Again, it's Israel that already created one state. You can't argue that Israel eliminated the two-state solution. Even Kerry says that. Martin Indyk says that. You can't deny that Israel killed the two-state solution. You can't deny that there's one apartheid state today. You can't get into the country without going through Israeli borders. So that there is one country today that Israel created. Now, if you want to say that one, you, so you can't deny there's in a single country today. Now, if you want to support a Jewish single country that's an apartheid regime, you can do that. I think it's a very hard position to be in. And if Palestinians, in a sense, this is what, what we're saying, and it's not easy for Palestinians. They're transforming their national liberation struggle into a civil rights struggle. And once the Palestinians say to Israel, okay, you know what, you win, give us the vote, what's Israel going to do? What's the Canadian government going to do? Say no, you can't, you can't, you know. I mean, it, Israel has put itself and all its supporters, I think, into an impossible situation. So the framing is crucial. And now if, if we become the voice uh, not the only voice, of course, but a, a, a meaningful voice of Palestinians and critical Israelis, then I expect the organizations that support us in the international community to, to support us. IJV, 
JVP in the United States, Jewish Church of Peace, the U.S. campaign, the Palestine Solidarity Organizations abroad, they're not taking it. BDS doesn't take a position on one state or two states because they say that's for the Palestinians to decide. We're saying, fine, there is no other Palestinian voice today except the Palestinian Authority that doesn't represent the Palestinians. We want to become that voice. And if we can be that critical mass and become that voice saying, we the people want a, a, a one democratic state, then we're going to expect and demand even that the groups abroad that support our cause support that position. I think that's our right as the stakeholders. And to advocate in places like Canada, because I think it would be quite astonishing if activists, say in Canada, were to be able to kind of get the one state idea out there and succeed in... Jeff Halper is an Israeli-American anthropologist, author, and activist, former director of the Israeli Committee Against Home Demolitions, and founder of the People Yes Network. Learn more about Jeff Halper and the One State Idea at GreenPlanetMonitor.net. And that's it for today's edition of the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues, Listen to us on CKW 95.9 FM, University of Winnipeg Radio here in Winnipeg, and at CKW.net. Subscribe to our podcast at GreenPlanetMonitor.net or around the world on iTunes. Tell everyone you know, can you? The Green Blues Show is created by Earth Chronicle Productions in cooperation with CKW 95.9 FM. We're both based in Winnipeg, Canada. I'm David Kattenberg. See you again next time. Bye-bye.